You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. My grandfather came over uh, from Hungary when he was just uh, like three or four years old, early 1900s, like 1905 or something like that. And just that, I don't know if he was just a toddler when he came over. My dad tells some fascinating stories of what it was like growing up in an immigrant home um, in the mid-1900s, early and mid-1900s. So even though my dad was born and raised here in the U.S., his grandparents lived in the home with them and still had significant influence on the family dynamics. Uh, I'm told my grandfather, my great-grandfather, could speak five languages fluently. And uh, he, but he primarily spoke Hungarian in the home. What was interesting, though, I learned that my dad said that he was punished if he would try to speak Hungarian in the home. That he was scolded, he was reprimanded, he was not allowed to speak Hungarian. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just him, his brother and sister, the same way they didn't. And the reason was this, his parents, my grandparents, didn't want their kids growing up with a stigma of being an immigrant. Immigrants in the day had a, had a hard go of it. They didn't have a lot of the same opportunities. And so to speak another language was a sign that you weren't from here. You're not one of us. And so everything they did was, we're in America now. We're Americans. Behave that way. Now, contrast that 100 years later to what we see happening in our culture this day. Um, People, by and large, when they're coming from other countries, are, are much more inclined to want to hang on to some of their cultural traditions hang on to their languages and hang on to those. And that's not a good or a bad statement. It just is different. It's, I was in Miami uh, not too long ago, and it's, it was ironic that in the, some of the store signs there, there actually is a sign that says, we speak English. <laughs> you know, so, so I was like, so that's just part of the dynamic of what we're living with. So he, here's the thing. It's easy in our culture today to see the things that divide us. It's really easy, too easy. But what unites us as a people? The mixture of cultures makes it harder for us to answer the question, what does it mean to be an American? And that matter of identity is at the heart of what we're going to be looking at today and actually in the next few weeks. We're actually looking at a sermon series on the book of Galatians. We're going to take a, take a walk through that book and that letter from Paul. And how one understands that letter affects how you think about God as a whole. It affects how you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it even affects how you live your life. A lot really does ride on this letter written by Paul. Now, let me give you a little context, a little background to this story. Jesus was a Jew. He was Jewish. He was born and raised in Israel in a Jewish culture. His ministry was to Jews, except for the occasional Samaritan woman at the well kind of a thing. But by and large, he was focusing on and only giving time to other Jewish people. His disciples, the apostles, were all Jewish. They all spoke the same language. They understand the same cultures and traditions. So when Jesus referenced an Old Testament text, everyone knew what he was talking about. There was a common understanding to what was happening. They had the same worldview, if you will. They were all insiders. But then we get to the point where Jesus leaves. In Acts chapter 2, we find Pentecost. 
And 3,000 people come to Christ in that one day. Now, if you notice in Pentecost, what's unique about that, that event? They were all Jewish people. They were all in town for a holiday, so they were all Jewish, but they were not all of the same culture anymore. They lived outside. In fact, I counted the numbers. There are 15 different people groups identified in Acts chapter 2. So now the gospel, so these people are in town for the festival, and then when they leave, they now take the gospel, as they understand it, back to their cultures where they're at. Some of them were in Roman cultures. Some of them were in Greek cultures. And even we've seen in Acts chapter 6 where there's some conflict between cultures where we've got the Hellenist widows and the Jewish widows, and there's, there's a conflict there as to who's getting fed and what's happening there because of cultural differences and dynamics. And then in Acts chapter 10, we see a Cornelius, uh, the story of Cornelius and Peter, and also now the gospel is not just going to Jews in Israel. It's not just going to Jews outside of Israel. It's now going to Gentiles. Cornelius is actually living in, in Israel, but he's got a, a, a Gentile worldview and paradigm. And then we get further on where Paul is taking his missionary journeys, and the gospel is going to Gentile peoples who have no preconceived concept of Jewish tradition and culture, none whatsoever. So Christianity expanding is into new cultures, to people who had no prior exposure to or understanding of the Jewish Christian faith. It was messy. Now, it's funny. We talk sometimes about, oh, if we could go back to the days of Acts. Be careful what you ask for. <laughs> it was a mess. There were conf- you read some of Paul's letters and you realize this was not a neat and clean transition into faith. Things were messy. And what began to emerge then is what does it mean to be a Christian? What does that look like for all of us? Since we don't have that shared cultural worldview paradigm, what does it mean to be a Christian? And so the book of Galatians is the Apostle Paul's attempt to correct some of the problems that were existent within that group of people. And in faith, so the question that, that Paul was addressing here, uh, among uh, a few questions here, but primarily Paul was trying to a- answer the question, is faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior the only prerequisite to salvation? Or is obedience to certain Old Testament Jewish practices and laws also required in order to gain salvation in Christ? For us today, we think that's kind of, well, that's an easy one. In that day, it wasn't resolved yet. It hadn't been determined what that needed to look like. So let me read a passage. Do we actually have uh, Galatians 1, 1 through 9 on the, on the screen? We do. Wonderful. Okay. So first, if you, uh, you can follow on screen or if you want to follow in your uh, device, whatever happened to have, Galatians 1, verses 1 through 9. So Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Father, these next few moments as we uh, dig a little deeper into this, this text, this passage, I pray God for insight, for discernment, uh, for the ability to say what needs to be said and the ability to hear what needs to be heard. And so, Lord, we want to commit this time to you in Jesus name. Amen few notes about this text, um, just to, again, help you with a little context. Verse 2, Paul, you know, in, in Paul's letters, there's always this preamble, things he's talking about, who's it from. Um, and, and in verse 2, he says, to the churches in Galatia. A couple things to notice about that. One is that compared to his other letters, that's very brief. It's almost business-like. Usually there's, you know, to the churches and such such, and he goes on about them. It's almost as if now he's, he's just saying, all right, you know, you know, sometimes in a letter you just say, you know, dear so-and-so. And this was just John, you know, or just the And so it was just them. Um, so which for those who were reading the letter would probably notice this was not, this was socially brief and, and a little bit abrupt. It's all business. Secondly, notice it's plural, churches in Galatia. The, the letter to the Galatians is a circular letter. And so it was meant to be shared by among the groups. It would be as if, if it was written to the churches of Grace Covenant. The way that would happen is the letter would come to us here in Statesville, and we would read it, and we would talk about it and digest it. But when we were done with it, we would pass it on to Cornelius campus, and then they would do with it and process it and read it, and then they would pass it on to East Lincoln. That's the way the letters were handled. So it was a circular letter uh, that everyone would be able to read. So we know that about the context. And then verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished. Is that actually the word that you've, that's up there? I'm astonished. That's not a, a word of surprise. Paul's not surprised by their thing. He's irritated. Uh, and that's really the tone that's being conveyed here is he's, and so by setting it up that way, the, the readers know that a rebuke is coming. Okay, so this is, they're like, oh man, we messed up now. And so imagine if you're reading this and you know what's coming because you, you can tell this is not right. And then he also makes this statement in verse 6 that you are so quickly deserting. What that tells us is that this process that's happening with the people right now is ongoing. He didn't say you deserted, that it's past tense. It's present tense. It's happening right now. And so Paul is trying to correct the problem before it gets worse, trying to make it better. The other thing we don't know is, is that we don't, there's no reference to the time. We don't know if this has been going on for weeks or months. I doubt it's years, but this has been going on for time. But we're really not giving a specific um, understanding as to what that looks like. So, again, as today as we're looking, I'm, I'm wanting to set a little context, a little overview for, for this letter we're looking at. And part of it is just how do we understand the text that we're reading? 
Um, and part of what I've already shared with you, you know, from verse 2, we, again, we can understand this text by comparing other letters from Paul. So we can understand, so, so we see that, we compare it to, oh, okay. And so if there's something different from here, that, that stands out then. It's noticeable because it's different. Um, in verse 6, I'm talking about this idea of, you know, this word astonished. You know, if you're doing grammat- grammatical studies or cultural studies or language studies, that helps inform our understanding uh, what's being said or what's being done here. And the reason why that's important is because there's 2,000 years. There's a big gap of time and cultural distance and understanding between the times. So to understand that, sometimes, though, it takes a little detective work. Um, and to illustrate what I mean by that, we're actually going to do a group exercise right now. Okay? You don't have to move. You don't have to talk to anybody. So you can, you can be, you're okay there. Just sit. You can just sit. I'm going to read you a quote, and if, if, and I apologize, I don't have it to be able to put on the screen, so you're going to have to listen. I realize for some of you who are more visual learners, this might be a little more difficult, but I'm going to read you a quote, and it's from a, an actual American citizen. The quote was given between 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue um, and yesterday. Okay, so sometime in our history, this quote was written. Your task is to determine the time frame as to what you think this was written based upon what you hear in the quote, okay? <clears throat> so it's a, little, it's, a, it's a short paragraph. <clears throat> when prohibition was introduced, I hoped that it would be widely supported by public opinion, and the day would soon come when the evil effects of alcohol would be recognized. I have slowly and reluctantly come to believe that this has not been the result. Instead, drinking has generally increased. The speakeasy has replaced the saloon. A vast army of lawbreakers has appeared. Many of our best citizens have openly ignored prohibition. Respect for the law has been greatly lessened, and crime has increased to a level never seen before. Okay? What's some of your cues as to when this was written? Prohibition. Okay, so we so these reverend. So if if you're familiar with history, again, we have to kind of understand a little broader context even beyond this quote. Prohibition began in 1920. So we know based upon this, this was not written in the 1800s. Okay, right. So we know that it was written at least after 1900s because of what is contained in the context itself. Okay, what else do we know about this time frame? I'm sorry? Okay, it's written in present tense, isn't it? So we know this wasn't written yesterday as a historical account of what happened back in then. All right? So we know that if prohibition ended in 1933, we know it's within that time frame, 1920 to 1933. Okay? Now, here's something else that isn't necessarily evident in a quote. For someone to make that kind of an observation about what's happening nationally takes some time. So you're not able, you're not, just practically speaking, you're not going to see the results that they're talking about prohibition within the first year. So if prohibition is 1920, 1933, this is probably towards the later end of prohibition. So this is probably written based upon that understanding. In order to make that kind of observation, this is probably written in the late 20s, maybe the early 30s. So we've kind of narrowed down this 
time frame for this passage to probably within five years. Simply by what's in here and what's not in here. <clears throat> That's a lot of way we have to approach Scripture. That's something I can just tell our dying to know when was it written, aren't you? So, sorry, wait, go back. Um, uh, Rockefeller is the author of the quote, 1932. Okay, so it was actually a year before Prohibition ended. So this, with this understanding then about texts and about letters and how we understand them, how are we to understand Galatians? Well, there's a conflict, and as, as we already read, that there's a conflict. What we, we'll, we'll talk more about that in the, the weeks to come, a little more detail, because uh, really in the first nine verses, we don't get a real sense of the, the, the specifics. But at its core, the problem is that there's a group of people that are known as Judaizers. They were trying to convince the Gentile Christians in Galatia that in order to be good Christians and gain God's approval, they also had to practice Jewish laws and traditions, including circumcision. <clears throat> now, Judaizers were not Jewish. Okay? Or, I'm, I'm sorry. They were not Jewish Pharisees. These were not, in, in the New Testament, Jesus is always opposing the religious Pharisees. These were not them. These were Christians. Okay? They were Jewish Christians or Jews who became Christians, but these were Christ followers who, from a Jewish background. They were Jewish Christians. They came from Jerusalem, but they were not part of the leadership group that we read about in Jerusalem. So this was not Peter and John and the other disciples, the apostles in Jerusalem did not send this contingent to Galatia to instruct us. These were people, these were some independent contractors acting on their own, trying to do what they thought was right and best. And given our little exercise that we had, um, I, most of what Paul's written is within the context of the book of Acts. You realize that? The, Acts is a historical account of what happened years after. And so most of Paul's letters can be put into a certain time frame. I'm a proponent that this, uh, that the Galatians was written before Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 is the Jerusalem Council, where they resolve the issue about what do the Gentiles need to do about their faith, or do they need to be circumcised? You know, how do we need to treat them? And the reason why I think that is why I advocate that this is written before then, because Paul doesn't talk about the Jerusalem Council in his letter. In other words, if, if this was after Acts 15, Paul's biggest argument would have been, hey, this matter has already been decided. Why are you still talking about this? This is no longer an issue. The fact that he doesn't address it suggests that this predates that the problem is still going on, and Paul is what he's doing is he's giving clarity as to what the problem is and how the church should respond to it. So why is this a problem? You know, so you've got some people coming in and saying, hey, you need to, you know, need to follow the Jewish festivals, and I'm sure the men were not real happy about the idea of, you know, needing to be circumcised, but outside of that, you know, what's the big deal? Why is this a problem that we need to... You know, be concerned about that Paul would be so concerned about. A few reasons. <clears throat> One is that because of the influence of the Judaizers, the Galatians were deserting the grace of God. Now that word deserting that we see in our text isn't the, just a sense of abandoning. It's the sense of betrayal. 
And if it was given today in our political climate, it would be as if one a, a U.S. senator from one political party was moving over to the other one. Okay, it just in, in our political environment, that's not just a political. That's a betrayal issue, and that that would be a, that would, that's that kind of emotion tied to to Paul's thinking here. And so Paul is very much one to realize. Wait, this this isn't just. This is huge, and he's wanting to make sure that they understood that. The Judaizers were perverting the grace of God. Heresy is dangerous, not because it's an outright lie. Heresy is dangerous because it contains elements of truth. The Judaizers were claiming that their message was complementary to Paul's teaching. So they didn't come out and say, you need to disregard Paul. You need to disregard the gospel. They were saying, no, no, all that's true. But Paul didn't go far enough. That if you really want to have a relationship with God, you also need to do this. You need to take it a little further. You need to do more. If you really wanted to please God. Uh, when we lived in Minnesota, we had uh, some friends right across the street from us who uh, um, were were Mormon. And uh, we went out to dinner with them one night, and we're just talking. And so I kind of got on this thing, because I always believe, you know, the Mormons had this outside the Christian faith kind of an idea. Um, and they were very adamant. No, 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 no. We're very Christian. We believe in the Bible, believe in all this stuff. It's the addition of the Book of Mormon and um, Joseph Smith and all, and so it's not it's not in a contradiction too. They think it is a supplement of, and, and that's what, and so in this regard, Paul was saying to them, it isn't just this harmless distinction. There's a there's he actually used the word perversion. This there's it's a very big deal what's happening here. And the reason why it's so dangerous is because it did contain it didn't deny the truth. It contained elements of it, but it tried to convince them that they had to do more. And because of that, the Galatians were reverting to living by the flesh and their own ability. So here's the irony, though. In their attempt to live more piously and spiritually, they were actually turning away from God. By trying to do more, trying to be more, they were actually creating a further gap. So Paul, as we're going to talk more about uh, in the days ahead, um, and even does so a little bit further on in chapter 1, he's calling the Galatians back to the heart of the gospel, which, as we know from Paul's other letters, because he really doesn't specify what the gospel is, which is ironic. He assumes that there's an understanding there. Um, And so we, we can gather this from other places. But Paul says this, Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God who was crucified and rose again. Jesus took on the sin of humanity that we might become the righteousness of God. Salvation for humanity is provided by Jesus and is possible because of grace through faith. And that's the heart of the gospel. I feel like I've given you a lot of information this morning. You know, history stuff. And and I apologize for those of you who are not... uh, fans of history. However, (laughs) I'm going to qualify my apology by saying this. I believe history is very important. Understanding history is very important to correctly understand our present. 
We can really only understand our current situation if we understand what preceded us and how we got to the point we're at. So with that being said, having given you some of the historical context, what does all this mean for us today? Why does this matter? Three thoughts. First thought is that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law and opened the way to salvation by grace. Jesus has already fulfilled the law. The law was established in the Old Testament with Moses and the Israelites. It was established to point out where people stood in relationship to God. So the more you obeyed the law, the closer you were to God is the idea. The problem was that obedience to the law didn't change a person's heart. That's where we see that constantly in the New Testament where Jesus' conflicts with the religious Pharisees. They were performance-driven. They were doing all the right things, but their hearts were not in the right place. Christianity is the only faith in the world in which God takes responsibility for the separation with humanity. It's the only faith in the world that offers grace. Every other religion in the world requires good works to earn salvation. And even then, your eternity remains in doubt. So really, even if you believe the argument that all religions are the same, you know, and they're all, they're all a way to God, even if you believe that, Christianity far exceeds anything else simply because of grace. It's the only one that offers this concept of grace, that God recognized the gap that's there and took steps in sending his son Jesus to bridge that gap for us. We don't have to do anything for our salvation beyond faith through grace. So that's the first thought. Second thought is that as Christians, we can live free from the additional demands to gain salvation. Now, Paul was writing to oppose the Judaizers. Judaizers were saying you need to do these things in order to be more spiritual, to be more godly to all these things and paul was opposing that so there's a temptation to think well that was a one-time deal then we don't do that anymore well back in the 16th century so as you again familiar with the, the a little history the reformation was what luther and all the other reformers in europe were rebelling against the catholic church not not only because of all the the things the ills the things that were that were happening within the church itself but Primarily, the rejection was that because the church was saying that salvation is based on membership. In other words, if you're baptized into the church, you're saved. If you're not baptized, you're not saved. So your proximity to God was based entirely on your relationship with the organization. That's why back in the day, excommunication was such a big deal. Because you're not just outside of the organization, you're outside of heaven. You know, so they acquitted that. And Luther and others say, that's not what we see in Scripture. That's not why Jesus died. If membership of the church was all that's needed, we don't need Jesus at all. Even more recently, um, some of my teaching opportunities have taken me to other countries. And uh, I was in Uganda um, a couple years ago. And uh, I noticed that all my students had two names an African name and a, and a Western name. And I thought the Western name was just kind of a, a nickname to help all of us non-Africans who can't pronounce their African names, you know. And so they just kind of, here's my nickname, and, you know, so I call him John. I was horrified to learn the truth. 
back in the day, Western missionaries would tell them, in order to be truly spiritual and to be truly Christian, you have to have a Christian name. And so to this day, many of them have an African name and a Western name because of what was instilled with them back in the day. Now, well-meaning missionaries, these were not people who were out to try to cause problems, but in their mind, this is how we understand what it means to be Christian. Uh, another time I was at a church in Chennai, India. And if I had closed my eyes and was just listening to what was going on, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding you, it was as if I was in a Methodist church in the middle of Kansas. It was three hymns in English out of a hymnal. Um, formality, you know, there were clerical robes, pews, and, I mean, there was nothing Indian about any of it. How did, how did it get to be that way? Because somewhere back, someone back in time said, this is how you do church. This is how you live out your faith. This is how you do what you do. So this is not just an issue that happens back in the past in the you know, time of, in the Bible, nor is it something that happened in the medieval time period with Luther and the Reformers. And it's not even just something that happens in other countries. This happens uh, to us today, doesn't it? The same idea that we need to do more, be more. And that's my third thought. God doesn't oppose effort, but he does oppose earning. Philippians 2.12 says, continue to work out your salvation. So some of us struggle with the notion that our salvation is contingent on our good works. That we have to earn salvation. We don't. Paul tells us unequivocally, we are saved by grace through faith, and that's it. The matter's been settled. Still others, still others of us struggle with the idea that for God to love us and be pleased with us, we need to do more. I'm a big proponent of the idea of a lifelong pursuit of God. Not because God is elusive and we can never find him, but because there's always more of God available to us than what we currently have. And so by this perpetual pursuit of God, we're beginning to encounter God in ways we never had before. However, at the same time, doing more can never increase God's love for you. Here's a simple fact. There's nothing you can do today, nothing that will cause God to love you any more than he does right now. The opposite is also true. There's also nothing you can do today right now that would cause God to love you any less. His love for you is total, it's complete, it's absolute. None of us are perfect, and each of us has the need for growth in areas of our life. But these are areas for spiritual maturity and are not the basis for God's love and grace. You know, my grandfather probably didn't think very highly of himself as it related to his American citizenship. And he was an American citizen and, and all that. But 
see, I, I'm not even sure he finished high school. Uh, he, fin- he spent all of his working career working for General Motors in the factory in Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, but my grandfather had no doubt about his relationship with God. I, this is, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't think this was, am I writing this out? And I'm, I'm like excited about it, and all of a sudden now it's like emotional. Um, my grandfather loved reading the Bible. He would go through Bibles like most people go through pens. You know, just was constant reading the Bible. He prayed constantly. Um, as kids, we hated it for family gatherings, and before the meal, Grandpa prayed. It's like, hurry up. The food's getting cold, and he's starting to pray for the missionaries in Africa. And, and it's like, you know, but that was Grandpa. Towards the end of his life, every conversation I ever had with him ended with, I pray for you every day. Then when he passed, and it's been a few years now, when he passed, you know what my first thought was? Who's going to pray for me now? My grandfather had an amazing relationship with God. Not because he was trying to assure his salvation. Not because he was trying to earn God's favor. Because God, because he had a genuine encounter with a living God. And his good works were simply the outgrowth of his love and appreciation for all that God had done for him. Each of us can have that same kind of encounter with God today. If you find yourself lacking in that area of your life, you just need to ask God to show himself to you and entrust your life to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you, Father, that uh, we don't have to earn our salvation. You give it freely. We just need to put our lives into the hands of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, it's not even just this a cognitive action. It's not just a mental exercise. It's this idea of having come into an encounter with you. And when we recognize what that means and what that looks like, Lord, what it, what it transforms us. So that when we read the Bible, it's not because we're trying to fulfill an obligation. It's because we're wanting to get closer to you. When we spend time in prayer, it's not because we're trying to to be able to check that box off our to-do list. It's because we recognize that there's an amazing dynamic that comes from spending time in your presence. So, Father, I ask that if there's anyone here this morning that is struggling with this area of trying to measure up, of trying to somehow meet a standard, this artificial standard, Lord, I pray that they would be released of that today. Father, free them from that. Lord, in its place, may they encounter you in ways they've never encountered you. Lord, that as they live out their life, it's in appreciation and gratitude for what you've done, not to somehow earn favor or to somehow earn their salvation. And Lord, I ask that you would indeed... Just make yourself real to each one. I do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I know in your, um, I want to say service program, but that's not the right word. Worship guy. Jeez. Um, There's a devotional that's been created to help you as we work through this book of Galatians for the next few weeks. Um, So make use of that. Make use of that. My encouragement to you, some of you, if some things I've said here may have, have influence your thinking or just struck a chord. 
This is not a cognitive exercise. It's a spiritual one that really does change when we encounter God. And that's my prayer, is that we have these transformational encounters with God. Not some mystical you know, thing, but it's just this inner knowing that you've encountered God in a way that's very powerful and very real. When that happens, it changes everything. It changes everything. So that's my prayer. Not that you read your Bible more, not that you pray more. My prayer for each of you is that you encounter God more. Everything else takes care of itself. Um, One of the traditions I would like to establish here is that I'd like to end every service with a blessing. Um, In Numbers uh, chapter 6, God tells Moses and Aaron how to bless the people. So I paraphrase that a bit. Um, So as we leave, as we're free, I'm going to ask if you want to stand and let me pray a blessing over you as we leave here this morning. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor, show you his favor and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.